14th chapter of the book of Romans, verses 1 through 12. Summertime gives us an opportunity a lot of times to have our families with us. Family reunions are happening all around. I think Cecil Potter has a delegation up here from of his family. He told me he was going to have a large number he was bringing to church this morning. I see them all up in the balcony there. We're glad you folk are here. We're glad you brought Cecil to church this morning. He, <laughs> oh, he's a dear man and one of our faithful members, and I know you're glad to be with him today, as we are glad you're here. Reading the text from the 14th chapter of the book of Romans. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or fall, and stands he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the, for the Lord, he does not eat and give thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. You cannot be saved without the Lordship of Christ. However, it is possible to know the Lordship of Christ in salvation and never get beyond that. The children of Israel were delivered from Egyptian bondage and they never got beyond that. And they were saved from the slavery of Egypt, but they never really ever went over into the fullness of the promises and the blessings of God. It is possible to know His Lordship in Saviorhood and never know His sovereignty in life. And I want to tell you something. I believe that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the pivotal point around which all of this matter of fullness and triumph revolves in the Christian life. 
There are some of you this morning who have been saved, and you know you've been saved, but you've never ever experienced victory in the Christian life. You've never reigned over your sin, and you've never known joy and fullness and deliverance. And because of that, some of you are wondering if you've ever been saved at all. And while it is possible for a person, while we receive Jesus Christ and experience the joy of knowing Him as our Savior, there are some of us this morning who have never known the joy of living under the Lordship of Christ. And it's wonderful to know Jesus Christ as Savior, but it's infinitely more wonderful to know Him as Lord. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church, things were in trouble in, in, in that church. I mean, it was on the verge of disaster. And there was a tremendous war, bickering and quarreling going on in the church at Rome. The problem was centered around silly and petty things like the observance of certain days and the eating of certain kinds of food. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians at Rome and said, in essence, I don't want you to take sides on those issues. For no man lives to himself and no man dies alone. For the real question is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the real question. The real question he's saying to these Romans as to us is, is not what you do on Sunday, what a Christian can do on the Lord's Day, or whether it's right or wrong to drink a cold bud. Those are not the real issues. The real issue is who owns you, and where do you bend your knee, and who do you obey? You settle that, he's saying, and that is a settlement that will settle everything down the line. For I want to repeat, it is not possible to ever find the balanced Christian life. You will never live in, under the Spirit's control and find fullness and victory apart from His Lordship. For if He's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. Now concerning the Lordship of Christ this morning, this text, there is first of all the right of divine sovereignty. The right of divine sovereignty is that He died and rose again and has a right to be your Lord because of that. That was the plan of His redemption. That was the purpose of His death and the program of His resurrection. That's why He died. That's why He rose. That's why He lives, in order that He might be Lord of your life and mine. In other words, He died in order to purchase us. He bought us. We belong to Him. We are His. Another word for lordship is ownership. He purchased us and bought us. In another place, the Apostle Paul says, You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Does that sound superfluous to you? It does to me. We don't talk like that. You don't say, I went to the grocery store and bought some groceries with a price, add that little phrase to it. That's assumed. That's, that's recognized. You know why he added that little phrase, you are bought with a price? Because he wanted us to know that it wasn't a figurative purchase. He really did buy us. We really do belong to him. He really bought us and the currency of exchange was his own blood. 
He gave his sinless back and they threaded it with a cat of nine tails. And he gave his sinless head and they plaited a crown of thorns. Those thorns were as big and as long as your index finger. And they made a plait of them, a crown of them, and put them on his skull. And then they took a stick and drove them into the skull. And he gave his sinless face and they plucked his beard and they spat on it. And he gave his sinless hands and feet and they drove nails through them and spiked them, impaled them to a cross. And he gave his sinless side and they thrust a sword in it and blood and water flowed mixed. And he gave his sinless body on that tree and he hung there in such excruciating pain he had to gasp for breath. And in the scorching heat he was thirsty and so they shoved a sponge into his mouth filled with gall and vinegar, and he purchased you and he bought you with that price. And he says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirits because they are God's. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow and purchased you and me. And you know Eugene O'Neill's play, Lazarus Laughs, he pictures this banquet that, has been, that is being uh, conducted in honor of Lazarus, only man who has ever come from the dead. I mean, in Bethany is anywhere. You know, you know, the people just don't rise from the dead every day. And so they had a big banquet honoring him. And seated there all reclining in the position of honor was Lazarus in the chief position. And to his right was Jesus, the one who had rescued him from death. And all of the eyes of that assembly were focused on, on Lazarus and on the man to his right, Jesus of Nazareth. And the questions are coming hot and furious. And they ask Lazarus questions like this, What about it, Lazarus? Are you going to marry Rebecca, daughter of John, as you planned, betrothed to you in marriage? And Lazarus turns to the man sitting on his right and says, Ask him, am I going to marry Rebecca, the daughter of John? And another question comes, What about it, Lazarus? Are you going back to work? Will it be the same as usual Monday morning? And he turns to the man sitting to his right. What about it? Am I going back to work Monday morning, same as usual? I tell you, this resurrected Lord has the right to be Lord of our life. We don't have the right to call our own shots and to choose our own vocation and to live our own life and to make our own way and to marry the person of our own choosing. You belong to Him. How about it, Lord? Is this the way it is or not? He bought your hands that you might serve Him. He bought your eyes that you might see His will and do it. He bought your feet that you might be swift to spread the gospel. He bought your heart that it might be poured in love over an unloving world. He bought your personality that it might be a magnifying glass to reveal Himself. And I tell you that if Jesus Christ is not the unrivaled, unconditioned Lord of your life, you have just repudiated His death and trampled underfoot, as it were, the blood of the new covenant. For He bought you. He died in order to purchase you. And He rose again in order to possess you. 
For we were not made to live in a vacuum or to be a vacuum. And if there is a Christian this morning who is not living under the Lordship of Christ, if Jesus is not really Lord of your life, you are the target for total defeat. Jesus gave a parabolic illustration that's been difficult for some of us to understand. He told about a man who had a house and it was occupied by an evil spirit. And one day the man decided that he would, um, he would drive out the e evil spirit, that he would vacate his house and clean it, and he did. He drove the evil spirit out. The parabolic illustration continues, and, and swept it out clean. And one day the evil spirit came and looked in the window, and he found that no one was occupying the house, and so he moved back in seven times worse than before. The number seven to the Jew was a number of completion or fulfillment. Now, I don't understand all that's involved in that parabolic illustration, but I believe it teaches this at the core, that you can come to Christ and He can forgive your sins and clean your life, wash your sins as we call it in His blood, and you be cleansed of that sin and forgiven. But if you do not let Jesus Christ possess that life, and if you do not live under the Lordship of Christ so that He is in control of that life, then you're the target for total and complete defeat. He has the right to be Lord. He exhibited His Lordship over the elements when He rose and rebuked the wind and the waves. He demonstrated His Lordship over disease by healing every malady of man. He had already proved he was mighty in battle as he encountered every motivation of the devil out in the wilderness, the love of the flesh, the love of the world, and the pride of life, and soundly defeated him there. And he demonstrated his lordship over human hatred and scorn as he gave himself to the hatred of men with a love that only God could know and said, Father, forgive them. And then came the greatest test of all. He died on that cross and the spirit was separated from the body, and for three days death held its prey. But on the morning of the third day, the spirit entered that shell of a body, and Jesus walked out of the grave, triumphant over death. Death could not keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. And when he came out of the grave, triumphant over death, he triumphed over everything that defeats us. And the Bible says that when that happened, when Jesus conquered death, that God gave him a position above every rule and dominion and authority, and he gave him a name which is above every name, and he placed all things under his foot. Now those all things that he was talking about or every, is, is everyone that is in this place and your anxieties and your worries and your depression and your finances and your business and your home and your life and he placed all of that under the feet of Jesus and declared him to be Lord when he conquered death. He defeated everything that defeats us. That's the right of divine supremacy. The scripture says there are the realms of divine supremacy. In what realms of life is Jesus Lord? The Scripture says He is Lord of the dead and of the living. 
in life and in death He is Lord. That means that you and I are responsible to Him in life, and we are accountable to Him in death. We are responsible to Him in life. There is so much irresponsibility among Christians. I know some church members who live with absolutely no sense of moral obligation over their lives at all. They live as if God and God's Word meant nothing. And you see this irresponsibility everywhere. That's why we have a permissive society. And I want you to know that you are responsible to God for every moment you live. I know what some may be thinking at this point. Here we go on another one of these legalistic negative uh, points of a sermon. Why we live under grace now and, and, that, and the law is no longer binding. Listen to what Paul said to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared unto all men and it, what? And the grace teaches us to say no to every ungodliness and worldly lust and teaches us to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. Are you a responsible church member? Hyman Appleman used to tell about this Indian chief. I think he lived in Anadarko, some town here in Oklahoma. And he was an in-full-blood Indian chief, but he wore a business suit, had a marvelous, nice, small business in the city. And one day an oil company decided that they would try to employ him to uh, help them get some leases, oil leases, around the country. He spoke all of the dialects of the Indian tribes. And he could be of invaluable help to them as they sought to get these leases from these Indian people from uh, Anadarko or wherever it was to the West Coast. And they offered him a salary of $100,000 and he said no. And they came back and they said, we'll give you $200,000 a year to be employed with us. And he said, no. And they got together a little conference and they decided this guy's worth anything he wants. And so they were going to give him a blank check. They went to him and said, you name your salary. You tell us how much you want. He said, there is no salary. I, you, that salary you offered me, it's not the salary. The first salary, salary you offered me is twice as much as I'm worth. He said, your job is not big enough for me. And they said, well, what kind of a job would be big enough to challenge you? And he said four words, my Sunday school class. And he had a commitment to Jesus Christ that was so deep in the church that it superseded a commitment to make money. Are you a responsible husband, a responsible wife, a responsible child, a responsible parent, a responsible businessman. Whatever you do, Paul said, do it as unto the Lord, for you're responsible to Him in life, and you are accountable to Him in death. Now you may not feel a responsibility to God in life. You may say in your heart, and with your lips, this is my life, I can live it as I please, I can do my own thing. You may not feel a responsibility in life, but I tell you for sure, you will be accountable to Him in death. Well, the Scripture says that everyone, every person, 
shall stand without pretense, is the J.B. Phillips translation, without pretense before the bema, the judgment seat. Now, I've been pastoring since I was 19. I've been wrestling with that statement. I don't know what it all means, but I know some things it doesn't mean. It, when he says that everyone shall stand without pretense before the bema, the judgment seat of God, he's not talking about being judged whether you're saved or lost. For he that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. That judgment's already been made. But I think I know what it means in essence. At the heart of it, I think I know what it means. I think the Bible teaches that every person, and the word stand is, not, is, a, more, is a heavier word than just your position there. It means to be made manifest. Everyone shall be made manifest without pretense before God in death. So that every action and every motive behind that action and every thought of the heart will be made manifest before the judgment of God. And we will be judged, the Scripture says, on the basis of our works. There's going to be a marked difference between the Christian who lives his life out before the Lord, discerning what is for God's glory, and the Christian who has lived, who is saved, but who has lived his life in self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, and self-love. And both of them are going to be saved. But the difference will be an eternal difference in heaven. And I don't understand how it's all going to happen. But that's just what it says. For a man who does not live his life under the lordship of Christ, the consequences of that life, he can be assured, will outlive the grave and he'll face those consequences for his eternity. For the realm of lordship is in life and in death. And then there is the rule of divine supremacy. How does one live under the lordship of Christ? That's the question. What are the rules of lordship? The text says they are a bent knee and a confessing tongue. For every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. What he means by bent knee mean, is this. He means unconditioned submission to God. And that unconditional submission affects all of his life. It, it is manifested in the home. You're not living under the lordship of Christ if you're not submitting to one another as husbands and wife. And if you're not submitting to parental authority, you can't live under the lordship of Christ. And that lordship affects the church, for the Scripture says that we're to submit ourselves to those God has placed in authority who watch over your souls and give an account. You're not living under the lordship of Christ if you resist the authorities within the church and the elders, those that God has placed in leadership. And that submission affects one's life in the world. If a man is living in defiance of the laws of the land, whether that be 55 miles an hour or whatever, he cannot live under the lordship of Christ and do that. 
Sorry to say that. It's just true. I was driving over to the hospital the other day in Sherman, Texas, and I was thinking about this sermon about living under the Lordship of Christ in all areas of life. Look down, I was going 65 miles an hour, you know, watching for the Smokies you know, along the way. God spoke to my heart about it. How can you say, I'm going to let Jesus Christ be the Lord of my life? God said to me, how can you say, let Jesus be Lord of my life if you do not accept the authorities He's placed in the land and are not submissive to them? It's absolute, total submission and commitment. Neil Jeffries led Baylor Bears to the Cotton Bowl. Neil Jeffries was a great quarterback, but he, had a, he stuttered. I mean, he, he could hardly get a sentence out without just laboring over it. In fact, one night in the huddle, he was calling the plays, the quarterback, and they were inside the 10-yard line, got a five-yard penalty for a delay a game because he couldn't get the play out. Couldn't say it. So from then on, the coach sent the plays in, had another guy call the plays in the huddle, he just snapped the ball, Neil Jeffries. That's how he operated his quarterback. I heard him speak one time. He's a great minister of youth now in Dallas. He got up in this speech and he was talking, got down to the end of his speech, stuttered halfway through it, got to the last word, couldn't get it out. And he struggled and strained. Everybody's on the edge of their seat trying to help him. The word was commitment. Now that's not a hard word to say, commitment. But it sure is a hard word to live. And the stronger the demands that Jesus made upon life, the fewer the, the people that followed, Bassanio reminds us. And so he fed 5,000 people, had plenty to eat, and there was 5,000 there. He announced he was going to preach, no food, no picnic, he was just going to preach. The number diminished to 500. He sent some disciples into the city of Jerusalem, and he wanted them to go in there and tarry and pray, pray for the Lord's word, and the number diminished to 120. And he was going to send them out to witness and, and be disciples, send them out two by two, and that number declined to 70. And he called some people to follow him to the end, and that number reduced to 12. And one of them betrayed him, so the number reduced to 11. And he took some into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he poured out his heart there in that encounter with Satan himself until he sweat blood, and the number was diminished to three, and they slept. And when he went to the cross, there was just one person who went with him to the end. Total commitment to Jesus Christ. That's the rule. There's no way around it. Total submission. G. Campbell, one preacher said, G. Campbell Morgan came to our town, preached a sermon, destroyed 40 years of my preaching. For 40 years I'd been talking about we needed to deny ourselves things in life. And so we did, my family and I, denying ourselves things. And G. Campbell Morgan came, preached one sermon and said, it's not things you need to deny, it's self. Until you lay your life on the altar and commit self totally and unconditionally to God, He'll not be Lord of life. I told the guys on Friday about this fellow who made a fortune. He was a businessman who made millions of dollars. Small town guy, made good. And he came back to his home church and his, one of his... Sunday school teachers when he was a junior boy asked him to come to speak to their junior 
Sunday school department on how God had blessed his life. He was a fine Christian. And he went up to the Sunday school class and was talking about how God had blessed his life. He said, when I was a young boy, just about your age, he said, he said, a preacher came to our church and he said that if you want God to really use your life, you've got to give God everything you have. And he said, I felt in my pocket and I had $3.45. Well, he said, I wanted God to take my life. And he said, I took that $3.45. Now remember, this guy is a multimillionaire. So I took that $3.45 and I put it in the, in the envelope and the offering and I said, God, with this, I give you all of my life. Now you think I'm fixing to wind up this story and tell you that because he did that, he became a millionaire. All you got to do is get your money and you'll become... No, that's not the point. When he finished his little story, one of the junior high kids raised his hand. He had a question. Well, this wag, you know, this junior high kid, they can ask some of the dumbest questions, right? Well, he asked this question. He said, Sir, could you do that today? Knocked him back on his heels. Could you do that today? Sure, we can take $3.45 and put it in an offering plate and say, I've given everything I've got to God. Can you give Him all of your life today? Can you do it? You'll never know fullness, and you'll never know deliverance, and you'll never know victory until He's Lord. It's the bent knee, and it's the confessing tongue recognizing that Jesus resides in your life, I'm going to ask you this morning to let Him reign in your life. Right now in this place, in this very room, have a little carnation service and tell Him and bend your knee to Him and tell Him with your tongue, tell Him with your lips, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my business, my vocation. I give you my family, my home. I give you my all. And I'm vacating the throne of my life and I want you to take over that throne room. I want you to take the throne and live as the unrivaled Lord of my life. I give you my plans and my pleasures and my treasures. I give you my dreams and my ambitions. I give you my business and my hope and my joys. I give you my life and my all. I place it all for you to do with me what you will, where you will, when you will. Reign without a rival. Yours is the throne. Can you say that? All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of, law, of all. Let every Kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, to Him all majesty ascribe and crown Him Lord of all. And the book of 1 Samuel says that all the people came together to make David king. Let it be said that on the 24th day of July, 1983, all the people came together to make Jesus king.
pray together. In this very room, Father, you are present. And to have you in our midst is an awesome thing, a frightening, awesome thing. To have you expose our need and our sin is a humbling thing. And to have you show us that we know you as Savior, but we've never gone beyond that to fullness, to deliverance, to victory, because we've never crowned you, Lord. I pray for each person hearing this now, this sermon, Father, in this very moment, that in the spirit of humility and grace and faith we'll come to bend our knee to Christ and to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In those areas of our life that are not committed, not surrendered, not submitted, we bring to Thee because we bring ourself to say, Jesus Reign as Lord. This is our prayer in His name for His sake. Now there are three invitations, and these invitations happen simultaneously. The first invitation is for you to come and know the riches of His saving power, to know Him as Savior. The way you come to know Jesus Christ as Savior is to repent of your sin, the life where you've been in control, and you come to take Jesus as your Savior, to take the free gift He purchased for you when He died on the cross, paying your penalty, mine. Come trusting Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Don't trust the church. Don't trust your baptism or your good works. Trust Jesus only. Have you ever trusted Jesus as your Savior? The second invitation has to do with His authority in your life concerning lordship. To come to say, I want to come and give Christ the unrivaled place as Master and Lord of my life. I come to make that conscious and deliberate decision to submit my life to Him. Or to come and place your life in the church where God is moving and where His hand is blessing. You come to say, I want to join the church. I want to be here. Because Christ the Lord has led me. Now while the choir sings, we'll ask you to stand. It's easier when you come on the very first word. So you just stand coming, will you? while we sing. <laughs>